We will work together with the Federal Reserve, with the FDIC, and with the private sector to establish a public-private investment fund. And this program will provide government capital and government financing to help leverage private capital to help get private markets working again. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Wednesday, February 11th, and um, we're still trying to figure out what Tim Geithner said in his big speech yesterday. In fact, that's what you just heard, a little bit of it. For those of you who are not financial geeks, like like we are, TiVoing this speech on two TVs just to make sure you have a backup, this was the widely anticipated speech by Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner in which he laid out Treasury's plan for how to fix the banking industry. And uh, we'll have lots about that in just a moment. But first, today's Planet Money indicator. It is $39.93 billion. Oh, my God. It's the trade deficit. That's right. In December, although we only learned today, in December, the U.S. overall, meaning all us citizens and companies and the government, bought $39.93 billion more stuff from the rest of the world than we sold to the rest of the world. And this is a big drop. The, the, deficit, the trade deficit had been up around $60 billion, so it dropped uh, 4% from the previous month. Which was a big drop from that $60 billion level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've been, Alex, covering the trade gap numbers every month for like four years. And I have to say that there are a lot of people in America, a lot of people in, in all sorts of important export industries who have been dreaming of a day that the trade gap could get this low, that would it would only be $40 billion. So awesome. But right. Not so awesome. <laughs> Not so awesome. <laughs> um, it, the, the reason it would be good is that it would mean that the U.S. was selling more stuff to the rest of the world, um, that we would have more of, of a balance, a healthier economy, at least in theory. Right. And I, and I should say, you know. Trade is good. It's a good thing. It's not bad for Americans to buy things from overseas, and it's not better always to buy things from the U.S., but the problem was the imbalance, that we were buying so much more than we were selling, and that has all sorts of negative effects. It lowers the U.S. dollar. It lowers U.S. GDP. It just hurts us in a lot of ways. But the trade gap did not go lower by us getting healthier. In fact, we lowered it by getting sicker and falling into a massive recession. Um, Americans are importing less, but we're also exporting less. There's just less world trade overall. So the trade gap is lower, but not because we're like exporting more. Ah, yes. I love turning potentially good news into actually deeply depressing news. That's the way we roll on Planet Money. That's the Planet Money way. Yep. So shall we move on to the big Geithner <laughs> speech? Yes, let's do. <laughs> All right. This was obviously the huge news yesterday, front page of every paper today. So so basically, since you know the election in November, everyone having anything to do with financial markets has been waiting to see what is the Obama administration going to do to fix the financial system. And for the last couple of weeks, the Obama administration has been building up this speech as the moment we would find out. And so he gave it yesterday. And to figure out how it went, how, how did Geithner do, how was the speech received, Planet Money's David Kestenbaum talked to... 
the Wizard of Wharton. Now, I do want to say uh, for listeners, he's not an actual wizard. <laughs> right. Um, he's With a, long... a tall pointy hat and everything. No, no, no he does have a tall staff. pointy hat, actually. But right. he's a longtime professor at one of the most famous business schools in the country, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. His name is Jeremy Siegel. And we went to him because he rated the previous Treasury Secretary's speech, Henry Paulson's speech, when he gave his un- big plan. Um, and Jeremy Siegel, the Wizard of Wharton, gave that speech an F Minus. Minus. That's a bad grade. Yes. So Dave asked him to grade Geithner's speech. Uh, I, I actually, as a presentation, I mean, I, he spoke well and forcefully in terms of the content. It was it was disappointing. Um, so I would say presentation. I give him an A minus. Content. I'd uh, give him about a a C. So I have to say here, Alex, that that I really got caught up in the moment here. You didn't I, agree with him. I didn't. I was giving his, the, the presentation aspect. Like, I agree on the content. There's a lot of problems there. But the presentation aspect right after the speech, I was telling everyone in the office, I actually went on the air on day to day and told everyone in America that this was just a great piece of theater. This was an awesome speech. I was saying to everyone who had listened that finally, after a year and a half, someone in the government came out and, and, and spoke clear English, showed some emotion, some anger, some frustration. And not everybody in, in the Planet Money family agreed with you, Adam. Everybody was basically in, a, in, in agreement on the content. Nobody liked it that much, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But in terms of the theater, you really loved it. Um, I'm going to read something that our editor, Jonathan Kern, wrote after hearing how excited you were. Quote, I have to tell you, Adam, I thought Geithner was awful as a presenter. I watched the whole thing and couldn't believe he unveiled the, quote, details, which were not details. And what I discovered later was the 30th paragraph. I thought Geithner sounded like he was giving a book report. I joked about how his little bow at the end is what someone does when he's finished with the presentation in grammar school. And the applause we heard, led by his mom in the front row, who was so proud of him. All right. Let's let the listeners decide for themselves. I I think, uh, Caitlin, we have a, a clip of the Geithner speech. Investors and banks took risks they did not understand. The rewards that went to financial executives departed from any realistic appreciation of risk. There were systematic failures in the checks and balances in our system. Our financial system operated with large gaps in meaningful oversight and without sufficient constraints to limit risk. I I don't know. I got to say, it doesn't sound that different. It's kind of technical. Sounds like he's reading a speech. He talked about something about meaningful risk or something. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I was a little too you caught, caught up, up in the moment. Well, and it's true. When you watch him, he's, he's, he's young and he's good looking and he does seem much more dynamic than what we're used to seeing um, yeah, from our previous uh, secretary treasuries. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, enough about the theater and the performance. I think, you know, Jonathan Kern wins this one. All right, everybody, we're going into the content, the actual stuff that actually matters. If you look at a stock market chart from yesterday, as I think many papers have on the front page, you see how the markets thought about Geithner's speech. At least that's what we think because it was a clear – every second of his speech, the Dow fell and overall yesterday fell something like 300 points, a huge drop. 380 points actually. 380 points, yeah. yeah. And and the market was not alone. Uh, You know, I think everyone we talked to yesterday, all the professional – prognosticators said it was they were pretty disappointed right so 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 what was wrong right and we are going to explain what was missing 
And to do that, we're going to do a, a little experiment with you, the listeners of Planet Money. We're going to dig into some stuff that, frankly, wiser minds than us might not recommend for discussion on a podcast. Right. I mean, you know, we're, we're not doing simple metaphor. We're not going to – we're actually going to dig in here. So Because we feel like if, if you want to understand this economic crisis – you, you have to understand the one thing we're going to talk about right now. It is the central, crucial issue facing our economy right now. And it's the one thing that the general media just avoids because it's not because they're afraid of it, just because – well, they are afraid of it. They're afraid of how boring it is. We're talking about the bank balance sheet. That's right, the bank balance sheet. And I think I want you guys to stick with us because I actually believe that you'll find it very enjoyable. So um, let's so, yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, let's start. Okay, so so let, let's imagine the simplest bank that, that we could think of. Um, I'm going to call it Adam's Bank. It'll be my bank. Uh, let's say you I always ha- get the bank. Anyway, I always get the bank. Well, you're more of a man of the people. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm more of a you know. Right. So um, I have – let's say I have $10. And I decide, OK, I'm going to start Adams Bank with $10. So I look up the rules and the government has some strict rules. They say if I have $10, I'm only allowed to borrow up to $90. I can't borrow more than that. So I, I decide, OK, I need $90. So I decide to borrow from you, from Alex. OK. But he doesn't say, hey, will you lend me $90? I mean, he is, but he's the way it seems to me is it seems different. He offers to open up a savings account for me. He says, if you give me your $90 that you've saved, I will give you a 3% return. Um, and that's basically what he's doing is he's borrowing my money from me. But to me, the, the the guy on the street, it looks like I'm just opening a savings account. Right. And every time we open a savings account, we're lending money to the bank. Right. So, so, so Adam comes to me and says, put my life savings, in this case, $90. Yeah, well, <laughs> I am in public radio. I only have 10 bucks. So. <laughs> into his bank. Yeah. Okay, so 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 I have a hundred dollars. Ten is is my money. Ninety I borrowed from Alex, and right now I'm losing money. This is a bad business, a bad bank. Um, I'm paying Alex three percent interest. I'm not making any money, so I have to figure out how to get some profit. So I decide to lend the hundred dollars to Caitlin. Thanks. Hi. Hey, Caitlin. <laughs> hey, Adam. Hey, Alex. Hi, Caitlin Kenny, our fabulous producer, who actually came in with a full-on fever and laryngitis today. Yes, part of my voice. Yes, <laughs> because we force her to. So, Caitlin, I'm going to give you $100 because I believe you want to buy a dollhouse. I do. It's a pretty sweet one. Right. And you're willing to give me 6% a year in mortgage interest. Sure. Okay. So this is generally the simplest bank in the world. Adam Adam takes in 6% from Caitlin, gives 3% to me, and keeps the difference in profit. And literally, banking used to be pretty much that simple. Be, you know, people would talk about banking being um, a 363 industry. You borrow at 3%, you lend at 6%, and you're on the golf course by 3 in the afternoon. The point is that this is the world's simplest bank balance sheet. Right. I took 10 of my own dollars. That's called the equity. If you ever hear this, this is actually on the front page of the newspaper every day now. Shareholder equity or capital. When you hear about capital infusion, that's the capital, the equity. That's the money the bank itself owns, the $10. Um, and and that 3% a year I get from Caitlin, the difference between her 6% and the 3% I have to pay Alex, that can add to the equity. That's how we make money. That's how we you know, get bigger and bigger and get richer. Um, I'm getting richer every year by adding to that equity, the equity I own. And the 90 bucks Alex gives me, that's called 
my liabilities. That's the money I owe him. So those two things together, that's one side of the balance sheet. Equity plus liabilities, together they equal 100. Now, on the other side is called the asset side, and that is the $100 that Adam has loaned to Caitlin. Caitlin is my asset. Caitlin is your asset. Now, uh, we should stop here because if you're confused and something seems backwards, that's because it is. To me, I, I put my money in, I put my $90 into a savings account. To me, that savings is my asset. That's my $90, all the money I have in the world. But to me, to me being the bank, Alex's $90 is my liability. I owe you that money. I have to pay it to you plus 3% interest every year. Now, Caitlin, your $100 to you, that's a liability. Right. Because you owe that money to me. That's a debt you have. But to me, I consider that an asset because you owe me $100. I'm going to get that $100 back. I also get 6% interest back. And the other very, very important thing here, the reason they call it a balance sheet, it always has to balance. Assets always equal liabilities plus equity. And this is a simple bank, but all banks have basically the same structure. Even Citibank, one of the largest banks in the world, it's the same thing. Assets always equal liabilities plus equity. Now, Alex, you actually brought in Citibank's I, balance sheet? I did. I have it right here. And, um, it's, and it, it's something you can print off the internet. Yeah, right? you can Anyone just get can it. Yeah. it. Yeah. You can just go and get it. And, and I'll just read it here. It's like uh, it's very, very similar to your bank with Caitlin, except in, in the case of Citibank, instead of a $100 dollhouse, they have $1.95 trillion in assets. Okay. <laughs> a lot of dollhouses. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the liability side, they have $1.8 trillion in liabilities. Uh, and then they have... Uh, and the difference is the equity. And the difference is the equity. They have uh, $150 billion in equity. It all equals... So assets are $1.95 trillion. Liabilities plus equity is $1.95 trillion. It absolutely balances the And we way. could go to any bank in the world. It would have a balance sheet. It would be just like that. Right. So here's where things get interesting. Here's where we get into the crisis. Um, let's say, Caitlin, you stop paying me back and, and I decide that I'm going to kick you out of your dollhouse. Sorry, Caitlin. But my baby, my baby, <laughs> where will my baby sleep? You know what, Caitlin, it's just a doll baby, so you have to leave. Fine. Okay. I'm going. <laughs> and then, um, now, and then, Adam, you decide you need to sell Caitlin's dollhouse. But turns to out- To get it, my money back. To get your money back, right? But uh, you own the house, you the asset, and so you're going to like get that money back. But it turns out it's a doll- down market in dollhouses. Um, and also there's some structural flaws that Caitlin didn't tell you about in her dollhouse. And, hey, it just needs a few repairs. And and so <laughs> you only get $95 for the dollhouse even though you lent Caitlin $100. So your balance sheet looks bad. It looks like this. You have $90 that you owe me. You have 10 of your own dollars. That equals 100 But on the asset side, you have one dollhouse worth 95 It's out of balance, and that means you're breaking the law. I'm breaking the law. The, the Fed or whatever, the FDIC could shut me down. So, so I have to make things equal. I have to have my balance sheet equal my assets, equal my liabilities and my uh, equity. So I have to take this out of my equity. So basically the equity, the money the bank owner owns or the shareholders of the bank own, is that has the first loss. Suddenly that 10 bucks that I called my own, the 10 bucks that was mine, is now $5. $5 of equity because I can't take it out of you, my depositor. Right. So so I have $90, which is your deposit. That's my liability plus $5 I own. $95 is, my, is on one side of my balance sheet that now 
devalued $95 dollhouse is on the asset side. So I'm in balance again. So basically, we've actually described basically the situation that all the big banks are facing um, and, and that Geithner is trying to, to figure out a solution to. Except it's actually much worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> because there, it's not just one Caitlin. It's literally tens of millions of Caitlins in, in homes and assets that are worth less than they thought they were. And they all bought dollhouses at the height of some kind of dollhouse mania. Dollhouses have not lost 5% of their value, but they've lost 10% or 20% or 50% of their value. And so let's just take this worst case example. If we go back to our balance sheet, if the bank takes over Caitlin's house, if you, Adam, take over Caitlin's house, and it turns out those structural flaws are really bad and it's a real down market and you can only sell her dollhouse for $50, you've taken a $50 loss. So my $10, my equity is gone completely. And 40 of my dollars is gone now. So not only is my bank totally insolvent, we can't just we have no money, but I can't even pay back my creditors. I can't pay back my de- my depositors. In this case, my good friend and colleague, Alex Bloomberg. This is a bad thing. Of course, I've lost half my savings. Adam, says, Adam, you've lost your bank. And it's all because of Caitlin and her stupid dollhouse. Thanks a lot, Caitlin. Hey, sorry. <laughs> you and your dollhouse mania. Um, so I don't want this to happen. And there's like a s- way out maybe, right. I think. Maybe. I don't sell Caitlin's house. I keep it. Right. But what about my money? Isn't it only worth half of what she paid for it? It's a down market in dollhouses. That's worth only $50. You have to sell it. I need something back. So I tell you, don't worry about that because your money is totally safe in my bank. The dollhouse market is coming back. That's what I tell myself. I don't have to sell it today. So it's not the house isn't worth $50. I'm just going to keep the Caitlin's dollhouse on my balance sheet. I'm going to keep owning it. And I'm going to keep saying it's worth 100 bucks, maybe $95. And I'm just going to say... Look, right now, the market for dollhouses is illiquid. There isn't enough buyers for the sellers, so I can't sell it. So there isn't a real market price. So then what I do, which is what the big banks are doing, is I get some really fancy dollhouse valuation software that says all sorts of models and says, here's what Caitlin's dollhouse will be worth a few years down the road, assuming the market comes back and everything turns out okay. But that's a crazy assumption. We're entering maybe the worst recession in decades. People are losing jobs all over the place. Everyone says things are probably going to get worse in the short term, not better. (laughs) Alex, I have chosen to believe that the house will be worth much more. Can you please let me have my dream? Okay. All right. So now, obviously, in the real world, the assets that the banks have on their books are much more complicated than dollhouses. They're very complicated structures involving pools of loans made all over the country and even the world. And there are legitimate questions about how to value them. But one thing that is pretty clear, if the banks had to sell them right now in today's market, they'd almost certainly take a huge loss, probably a loss big enough to wipe out all their equity um, and maybe even a loss big enough so that the creditors to the bank, the people who have loaned the bank money, wouldn't get their money back either. And that is so huge. That just, it never happens. It never happens. And and in the real world, we should say people like you, Alex, obviously, are with people who have a simple savings account, you are safe because of FDIC insurance. Mm-hmm. You're not going to lose your money because the government will come in and, and give it to you. But, but banks have 
lots of other people giving them money. It's not just individuals giving them their life savings of $90. There's, uh, you know, money market funds and rich people and pension funds giving, the, you know, Citibank and Bank of America billions of dollars. Either they buy their bonds or they get these, you know, huge short-term CDs, just to name some examples. And those are not government protected. Those will certainly lose money if one of these big banks goes under. In this worst case scenario. In this worst case scenario. So what do we do? And that is what this whole Geithner conference is about. And basically, there are a few options. One option, this is the one that Paulson, Hank Paulson, the former Treasury Secretary, originally proposed, the first TARP, which you'll remember now stood for Troubled Asset Relief Program. And now, hopefully, asset makes sense. That's the dollhouse, basically. The idea was pretty simple. The government buys Caitlin's dollhouse that is worth, on the market, $50. The government buys it for more or less its full value. Or maybe a little bit less, $97, let's right. say. Caitlin's dollhouse is a troubled asset. It was bought for 100 It's now worth 50 And the government would just pay close to full price for it. So uh, so I'm a banker. Let's say the government buys the dollhouse for me for $97. I take a hit, you know, $3 out of my equity. That's 30% of my equity. That That's not nothing. But I get to keep my bank. I get to stay in business. My, do- my depositors, you know, stay happy. The problem is that, first of all, the government has to spend a lot of money uh, – and we get stuck with a $50 dollhouse that we paid almost $100 for. Um, it sort of turns the government into a pretty big sucker. And many people say it bails out people like Adam, who made dumb loans to people like Caitlin, who everyone knew couldn't, couldn't possibly keep current on her dollhouse mortgage. But the other thing is the government can't get a better deal under the scenario because, as Jeremy Siegel, the Wizard of Wharton, explains, if the government maximized their returns, that is, paid only what the market would pay, that would defeat the whole purpose. The government's not a maximizing thing here. The government's going to show out money. They're going to try to do it in the cheapest way possible, but they're not going to make the hard. They can't make the hard decisions that the private sector makes. Um, this is not a strategic investment for profit um, for the government. I mean, the government's just not going to make those calculations. They're, they're going to try to do it as cheaply as possible and spend as little taxpayer money as they can and still make it uh, attractive. To the public. Okay. The, the other part um, that in, another thing they talked about was this idea of stress testing the banks, but yeah. they're not going to make the results of the stress test available to the public because that would indicate which banks might be in trouble and then you might get a run on the banks. But won't it be clear which banks don't do well in the stress test because they're going to be the ones raising capital, you know, being asked to raise capital? They're going to be the ones who are all of a sudden. Well, I think we already know them. The I mean, if you want to know the truth, they're already identified. We know which are the weak banks. I can rank them. Um, and, uh, but I do think, you know, I mean, what, what, I think they all sat down and say, well, how much capital do these banks need? And they say, I don't know. I mean, no one has gone in and really valued their assets, not at what the banks hope that they're worth and put them at, but what, you know, a hard-headed uh, individual says they're worth. And then you know exactly how much capital you know that 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 is involved in in a government bailout. You know the toxic. How much how much capital they get to meet the minimum? How much uh, you know exactly the cost? I think when they sat down and tried to do hard numbers, they were saying, well, "Just a minute, we don't even know exactly the position of the banks. We got to know the position of the banks before we come in and 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 and, and talk about the cost to the taxpayer." Okay, um, how many of the banks right now do you think would be insolvent if someone? as you said, hard-headed, went in and valued what they actually have? Well, I don't know how many, but I think there might be on a, on a current market value. And again, the market 
maybe over-discounting some of these, but probably wouldn't be surprised if City and, and Bank America uh, really at current value of their assets don't cover uh, the depositors and the bondholders and we wipe out shareholders' equity. And there could be others too. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, one of the reasons why the government was wary of setting a price was that if the price was too low, then you find out that, you know, then all the banks have to write mark down, down, mark exactly, down and it right, turns out right. a lot of them are insolvent. How does what they proposed here get around that? It doesn't. That's the whole reason why the market's disappointed. That's the whole, that was the whole point of, of that was, the, that was the, the, the critical issue that the market was hopeful that the Obama administration had come up with some way to do that, and it, it appears they have not. Wow. I yeah. got to say, for, for financial geeks like us, I mean, what he just said is unbelievable. Two of the biggest banks in the world, he believes, we're not saying we know that he's right, but he believes Citibank and Bank of America, if they had to say what the dollhouse is really worth, are insolvent. Two of the biggest banks in the world are insolvent. Their equity is wiped out and their their creditors are going to take losses. That is just – it never happens. It's that just never like, happens. It's like sort of unbelievable to people in the bank industry. So, so obviously the, if they want to keep them from facing that untimely demise – the government has some other options as well. So, so we said one option is they just say, forget having to face reality. We will pay you a lot more for the dollhouse than the dollhouse is worth. But the government, there's another plan. There's another right. way they could do it. That's distasteful for many reasons, which obviously people – Right. The gov- yeah. the gov- we taxpayers don't want the government buying $50 dollhouses for $97 from the people who set and created the whole crisis. So the government could say, hey, bankers, let's get real. I would have to recognize my loss. I'd have to admit that I am $50 in the hole. But then I, what I would be allowed to do is go to the government and say, give me $50, please. And the government would give it to me. Um, 40 of that dollars would go to, to protect people like you, Alex, my, my depositors. So I'd have enough to cover the $90 that my depositors gave me. And I would get $10 for that shareholder equity. So, so I'm back to being a healthy bank because the government has stepped in and, and, and filled in that hole um, without but, – but they don't – when they do this, they don't own a lousy dollhouse. What they, do, what they own is a bank. They now right. own – The problem bank. from your point of view is that when the, share, when the government comes in and says, OK, here's $50, 40 of it is to pay off your creditors and 10 of it is to rebuild your equity, the government owns the equity now. So I, as a banker, I way prefer the Paulson plan. I way prefer, like, just think about it. I have this $50 dollhouse that I think, well, I wish was worth $100. i would much rather just sell it for 100 and then I own my bank. I run my bank. I'm happy. Um, this new plan means that the government owns my bank. So, so personally, I'm wiped out, and I don't like that. And then on top of it, this is called, or at least some people call it, nationalization. And we're America. We, we hate nationalization. On the other hand, at least this way, I as a taxpayer now have an ownership stake in this bank, which I can sell to someone down the road once the bank is back on its feet and making good loans again. And I'm not stuck with a dollhouse that might never regain its full value. Um, and also, just on a personal level, why should you get to keep your bank? You made horrible loans on overvalued dollhouses to deadbeats like Caitlin. Sorry, Caitlin. You don't deserve to keep your bank. I would like you to th- just for once 
think about it from us poor bank owners' perspective, us, us <laughs> sweet and, and, and much maligned bank owners. Okay. Or, or we could just agree to disagree on this. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, I'm going to step out of the role um, of, of, of fictional bank owner right now and say – there are tons of variations on these various plans we've talked about. And, I mean, I feel like every op-ed in the Wall Street Journal is some new, complicated solution to this. But but that's the basics. The government buys the dollhouse or the government buys the bank. And yesterday when Geithner gave his speech, the world, or I guess the part of the world that cares about financial matters. <laughs> that was Tebowing his speech. <laughs> that was Tebowing his speech. Um was waiting with bated breath. I mean, this was the big thing. They wanted to find out where is he going to be on the dollhouse to bank continuum. Right. Would he use some complicated formula to try and get a good deal for the government, buying up those dollhouses, some new brilliant idea that no one had thought of? Or would he just go ahead and take over the banks? And here's the thing. He didn't do either. We still don't know. We still right. don't know. And right. uh, it was, you know, in my view at the time, it was a beautiful, eloquent speech or whatever. But he gave almost no details. And, and the details are unfortunately what matters. Uh, with the plans Geithner's considering, small, subtle changes, the kinds of things only banking lawyers can notice, could mean the difference between a great deal for taxpayers and a totally ridiculous subsidy to rich bankers. And the problem is we don't know enough to see where the decimal points are in this plan. We don't know if it's a great thing that will save banks and protect taxpayers or if it's a disaster that won't do either. Now, you know, Alex, there's a third option that we haven't talked about at all that mm-hmm. isn't on the buy the buying something lousy continuum. The government could just say, forget it, guys. You're on your own. Adam Bank, Citibank, all of you, you made bad bets. You you're going to suffer the consequences. That's capitalism. It's not our problem. But that's the thing. Uh, It is our problem. It's everybody's problem. At least that's what Geithner believes. And pretty much every other economist or smart person we talk to believes that the banks are, they have us over a barrel. We can't let the big ones go down because when they go down, it causes this whole chain of events that just sort of further sinks the economy into turmoil. And I hate cliches, but the one we keep hearing is too big to fail. Right. And and what that means is if they fail, it's going to be worse for everybody. Um, and so for the sake of all of us, unfortunately, we have to figure out a way, a way to save them. Which means it seems that to save the economy, we taxpayers are going to lose some money. When, when we have these bank bailouts, we are not investing our tax dollars like a you know, hedge fund invests it to make money. We're just trying to keep the bank alive to keep our economy going. So, and I think we're done now with Banking 101. And just quickly, here's what we do know about the details of what Geithner proposed. There were three main areas he talked about, two of which we know almost nothing about. There will be around $100 billion spent on helping homeowners. That's you, Caitlin. Yay. (laughs) Sort out your problems. How the government's going to do that? No idea. Uh, And no details given. There will be a lot of money. Part two, there will be a lot of money, like a trillion dollars or more, to help get consumer credit going. That's credit cards and auto loans, making it easier for people to get loans to to buy stuff. Again, very few details about how exactly they're going to get that credit flowing again. He told us we'll find out more over the coming weeks. Yes. So – and and the part of the speech and the part of the plan that deals with the banks, it looks like on balance he's made people like me, bank owners, pretty happy. <laughs> right. He's leaning more towards the buying the bad dollhouse, buying the lousy assets than the taking us over and and um, and, and having the government own the bank. Um, now, now, 
you know, he said there's going to be some kind of public-private partnership where the government partners up with hedge funds and others to buy these dollhouses. Um, but we don't actually know enough of the details and the kind of hedge funds and private funds that would do it to say they don't know enough to decide whether they're going to do it or not. So Yeah. And right now, the Planet Money team actually is working on digging into the details of this. We're going to do a big show about this that will air on NPR and This American Life. Look for it the week of February 23rd. And I just want to say one thing. Like, leaving aside what we think of the plan, I, I, I think it's fair to say that anyone in this position in Tim Geithner's and President Obama's position or Henry Paulson's position, Ben Bernanke's position, this is unbelievably tough. I mm-hmm. mean, they basically – they have an actual economic problem. How do you actually solve the bank's problem, which is very technical, very difficult? They have a political problem, which is basically the whole country is saying, what the – what are you doing? Right. And the, get, and the whole country is saying, get us a good deal on our money, which sort of by necessity they can't do. <laughs> so – I have a lot of sympathy for how hard this is, but but nonetheless, like everyone in the country, I want a really good plan that you know works, and mm-hmm. so that's what we're going to be spending the next couple of weeks and doing this big This American Life show on. So anyway, I think that's a wrap. Yeah, and uh, and also what we'd like to say is this was sort of a for you listening out there. This was sort of a test run for how we're going to explain all this on the radio. Um, we're going to be reworking this and sort of adding and subtracting parts. But if you could do us a favor and let us know, was this helpful? Did you understand? Did it help you? Was it too technical, too simple, too boring, too exciting? (laughs) Uh, Just let us know, please. So let us know. Send us an email to planetmoney. That's one word, planetmoney at npr.org. Or you can let us know on the blog, uh, npr.org slash money. Uh, Comment there. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Caitlin Kenny. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thank you for listening. She's got a carburetor tied to the moon. Pink guys looking to the fruit of the ages. She's a